Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 98th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows better than to put magic online staff in charge of the cryptocurrency revolution. MDG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MDG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin. And we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James. Uh, hello, everybody. Glad to be here. Another great episode, all sorts of useful information and some fun topics this week. Uh, our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, Travis, what's on the agenda this week? Uh, James, this week we have a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers, where we will talk about the cards that have seen the largest increases in price this week. Segment two is our cards to watch. James and I will talk about some of the cards we think could rise in price in the future. Segment three is our metagame week in review. We'll be looking at Grand Prix Oklahoma, a modern GP from last weekend. And segment four, our topic of the week, we'll touch on Unstable since we didn't get a chance to talk about that last week. We'll also talk about Nova Blitz and the merging of cryptocurrencies with digital card games and what the future could look like there. Let's start out then. Segment one, our top movers. Our first card on the list this week is Academy Rector from Urza's Destiny. Started the week at $30, up around $50 right now. Uh, Academy Rector is a staple of EDH decks. It's been around, uh, popular in those types of strategies, um, various EDH strategies and what have you for a long time now. Uh, An excellent card, really great combo uh, piece too. Like you play Academy Rector, sacrifice it immediately, search up some ridiculous enchantment, like for instance, uh, Omniscience, uh, and then just go off. So you can do all sorts of dirty things with this card. Uh, Every now and then you see it in Legacy too. Not a huge component there, mind you. Um, But like, you know, you can find tier three and four Legacy decks that use it. Looks like the supply right now is, you know, you can find some copies at like $35, $37, uh, but there's not many. I mean, you there's like seven copies on TCG before you're at $50. So maybe not actually $50 right now, but supply is super low on near mint copies. It's a unique reserve list card um, that sees actual play in five or 6,000 decks on EDH rec um, would be a lot more if it was cheaper. Um, and will you know continue? The supply will continue to erode since we know that the supply side of the equation cannot be increased. And, uh, thanks to the, the reserve list. So I was picking up Japanese copies of this and a couple of English uh, early in the summer and uh, plan to sit on them for six, 12 months and see where we, we pan out. Yeah, the card is ridiculous. And I think I have a foil or two floating around. Uh, I don't know when I will get rid of them, if ever. They're pretty cool to, to have copies of, but ships kind of sailed on that for the most part. We'd have to have a humongous move um, in reserve list foils again for that to be worth buying. All right, next on the list, we got Bazaar Baghdad, supposedly, quote-unquote, bought out. Um, not really. It's just the supply is relatively low. It's been eroding for months. Um, we've seen it spike here and there a few times this year already. Um, in theory, it moved from $850 to $1450, $600 gain. Um, I don't think that's uh, that price has yet to be tested, would be the way I would put that. Um, there are several copies on eBay. Most of the major vendors have some available. There's copies floating around in Europe. There's some in other overseas pockets. Um, and you might want to check out your local game store if you've ever had your eye on one of these and they've still got it priced at the price from three months ago. Um, that might be a decent thing to trade into. Um, amazingly, uh, I went back through my Puka trade log and like 18 months ago, I got one of these for the equivalent of $660 worth of trade-in cards and none of those were worth more than 10 bucks. So <laughs> going to be hard to stay mad at Puka trade this week. Oh, so that was an Old screenshot. Okay. I saw the date of December on there, but that must have been last December. I think it was that like, what I saw. Yeah, it was either last December or the December before. The okay. um the, the odds of getting a thousand dollar card through Puka Trade these days, unless you're offering three thousand in points, are pretty low. 
Yeah. Um, that it's astonishing sense. me. It was astonishing for me to go back and look at the records and see that I got um, uh, foreign black border German volcanic island near Mint, a bizarre Baghdad and a Mishra's workshop through that site. So for a while it was pumping there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a shame where that went, but oh well. Um, okay. So next on our list is Trade Roots, a personal favorite. I don't know if this will ever do, ever do anything, but it is cool. Um, Foil ninth edition copies started the week at four, up around seven. TC player showing only two uh, foil copies at seven dollars and none others. Uh, I don't think there's really any probably foil copies of the other editions. Let's see. Let me check out Mercadian Masks here. Uh, there are zero foil Mercadian Mask copies around, so not a lot of foil copies of Trade Roots left. It doesn't show up as being terribly popular in EDH or really any format, so I'm not exactly clear what what demand where the demand may be coming from uh but it is a nifty card uh I, this might just be people thinking they came up with a cool idea or noticing low supply uh i, I wouldn't kind of I, I tend to favor it. for something that hasn't been reprinted since ninth i tend to favor the low supply situation i mean people forget that it's a pretty small percentage of the overall market magic market but there's there are collectors out there like tens of thousands of them that just finish sets and they quietly do their thing. They hardly interact. Um, they, you know, with the the MTG finance community, other than to purchase. So, you know, guy like my dad runs pretty silent. It's not like anybody knows his name, but he spends even more on magic than I do. And you know, he's just out there compiling every set ever made. It's a lot of magic cards. <laughs> it's a yep. lot of money. <laughs> he has he has literally has offsite storage space to hold his collection now. Jeez. Does he have a full set of alpha? Mm-mm. Full sets of everything but Alpha. Jeez. Um. Okay. Uh, next card. Uh, it's kind of interesting, James. What is it? As foretold, which was my pick last week in the foil side of things, people have been uh, finally shifting gears and realizing that this is a modern playable card, as we said it was early on. <laughs> and people said we were crazy, but here we are. Um, and not just as a one or a two of like Search for Azkanta, but as a four of Mythic showing up in emerging decks in modern um, by no means tier one at this point. Like this is still something people are figuring out, but LSV and everybody else has been streaming the blue uh, mono blue version of living end with as Tool that lets you like cast living end off the top of your deck for free and bring back a bunch of blue cycling creatures into play, um, uh, which fixes a bunch of the mana problems that were present in some of the other living end builds um, or the vulnerabilities to um, things like uh, Blood Moon and so forth. So, um, you know, as foretold, is, is it locked up as a modern staple? Definitely not. But we're moving in the direction of, of possibility. And uh, Magic Card Market, which is the European equivalent of TCG Player, was reporting it was their most sold card this week. Wow. That is a lot of copies to be hitting the most sold list. Yeah, Jeez. and it's nice to see uh, this trend line that we're reporting is from North America. So the, the fact that it's echoed in in um, Europe probably means the Japanese were on it three weeks ago. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, all right, next card this week is Sylvan Safekeeper from Judgment. This is uh, an old invitational card. Um, a lot of people might not realize that because it's not nearly as popular or well-known as the other ones. Uh, but with the foils from Judgment, which is about doubled this week from 10 to 20, currently zero foil copies available on TCG Player Near Mint. And are there any? Just some LPs and HPs for a bunch of money. Um, was reprinted in Commander a little while ago that gave it a little bit more traction. Probably players found out about a card they didn't know existed. Uh, mostly just EDH. I think it's, what do we say, like 5,000 EDH decks or something like that. So definitely some demand there for it. Uh, and given how, you know, we're talking about Judgment Foil, so that's ancient, um, as likely where that's coming from. Uh, you know, so if I if I had copies, I would be willing to sell them here because this could show up again in anywhere that they can print foil. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say anywhere they can print foils. You could see this in several different places. Uh, and it would make it, it may not decrease the price of the Judgment Foils, but it would certainly make them a lot less liquid. So, um, you know, if you're holding on to any here, I'd be happy to get rid of them. Oh, we're going back to Dominaria this year, right? And Sylvan is from the Central Plain. So it's going to get reprinted anywhere. It's going to be in that block. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you could see it in like Masters 25 too. You know, they could run back all the invitational cards or something. 
Sure. Uh, you are artifacting quite a lot, so you might want to try turning off whatever streams you've got. All right. Uh, so I just turned off GDAX. Oh, you know what it is? Leanne is streaming Netflix at the moment. Are you I still? Not. Oh, she turned it off. Okay. Uh, I don't have anything else on, so we'll see if that did it. Steam's not downloading something in the background, is it? Mm, no, I don't think so. All right, we'll see how it goes from here. All right, so next on the list, Magus of the Candelabra from Time Spiral. Foils going from 6 to 17. This is the uh, creature 1-2 creature for, I believe, 1 green that allows you to untap lands for X. Uh, so basically gives you the Candelabra of Thanos ability on a stick. Um, a card that uh, does see some play in EDH and uh, hasn't been printed in quite some time. So again, low supply foil situation. Okay. Yeah, Magus of the Candelabra is a really cool card. Uh, I always kind of wondered if it could make it in EDH. It never really got there. Or not EDH, I'm sorry, Modern. It hasn't gotten there, and I, I don't think it really will. Um, I mean, it's going to play in, in Commander to some extent. Uh, not a terrible amount. Um, I mean, we're looking at, uh, let's see here, not even a 1,000 decks. So it hasn't really broken through yet, although I have to imagine there are a lot more people that could be playing this card but aren't completely aware of it because uh, as soon as you have lands that produce extra monic it's pretty ridiculous um a cool card uh my real problem here is the original foils aren't old border they're new border so like if they reprint this in anything with foil it's going to be uh to look essentially the same you know you're not going to get like the differences in frame or anything like that so i don't know i would probably sell this for 20 dollars if i had it floating around so finally on the list, we have Fiery Justice Foils going from 250 to 8. Uh, if I recall correctly, this is a decent sideboard card against Death Shadow builds in Modern um, because you can give them life and uh, split up a bunch of damage and uh, potentially kill Shadows. Um, so more of a low supply situation than a high demand situation as well. Supposedly moved from 250 to 8. It's a $5 gain. Hard to make any money on that, and it's unlikely you've got those foils sitting around anyway. Yeah, you probably would have sold them the last time this jumped in price, which was, I don't know, weeks or months ago, a couple months ago. Wouldn't be the first time. A nifty card, and I like the old one. Um, okay, so that's our, our top movers. Uh, still a little a little more than we've seen in the last weeks, but still a quiet time of the year for sure. Um, let's move over to segment two, our cards to watch, James. Uh, I know this first one is probably not the first time we've heard you talk about this card. Uh, what have you got for us? Yeah, I was talking about Traverse the Ovenwald foils like at least twice uh, more on two other occasions earlier this year. I think the last was about 12 weeks ago. Um, but supply has continued to erode as this card has has made uh, additional inroads into modern as a four of, uh, often in Jund-flavored Death Shadow decks, um, where it lets you go search up uh, the aforementioned Death Shadow and or a land, uh, a necessary land early on. Um, buy-in price now is still about 8 bucks, but there's not very much supply left. And it's also in uh, 4,000 EDH decks already and probably more down the road as people realize that it's a hyper-flexible, open-ended tutor. Um, so I think you're going to get to $20 on this for 150% gain. Give it, say, 6 to 12 months. Yeah, I, I mean, that's completely fair. It's, Worldly Tutor is an extremely popular card, and this is, uh, in many cases, essentially the same thing or better. Um so I can certainly see uh, a good bit of movement here. And I think I've said that in the past too. So <laughs> I still like it. <laughs> All right. What about your first pick? Uh, let's see. This week I'm starting out with Sidisi Undead Vizier. Uh, this is the black one that uh, tutors you. When it comes into play, you can sacrifice another creature to tutor. Foil copies right now are at about $15. I like them up to about 30 right now. Um there, this uh, Sidisi is in 17,000 EDH decks. So it's very, very heavily played. Uh, I knew it was popular. I didn't realize it was that popular. Uh, but I mean, it is a repeatable Demonic Tutor in the format that makes Demonic Tutor a $30 card, which is pretty crazy. Um, and supply is really low. I mean, there's like between of the pack foils, I pr think there's like five uh, of the pre-release foils there's a couple more but there's not more than like 10 or 15 and the price on those is like a dollar less so the supply is really low uh it's an extremely popular card we're unlikely to see it anytime in the future because it's a uh it's got the mechanic on it and i don't have it 
it is what is the name of that mechanic? It's not is it exploit? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah it's, it's got exploit. exploit written on it, so they can't just stick it anywhere. Uh, it's also a highly um, story dependent card. You know, it's CDC specifically, so like I could definitely see this getting reprinted in commander sets, but of course it won't be foil. So I think you're good for uh, for a clean double up there if you can pick them up at fifteen. Yeah, I've been picking these up for ages, and we've mentioned this a couple of times in the last 16 months or so, because it's been climbing up the ranks on EDH rec for quite some time. Uh, I picked up a whole bunch of these in Europe under about 10. I seem to recall maybe you were in on that action as well. Uh, I don't know what I have stashed at this point on that. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I know I picked up some Japanese ones from overseas as well. Um, I think the one risk here is Magic 25. I think that that master set could easily... Uh, reprint some of the exploit cards uh, and CDC is a known quantity for EDH and a likely reprint. Um, I think that if you're holding foils, you certainly want that to happen in a non-foil EDH set instead of M25. Um, But, you know, add this to the pile of cards that are at risk if they see a reprinting this spring. Yeah, agreed. I mean, and you know, we've, we've talked about how there are lots of cards that could get reprinted and there really are a lot of this stuff is, is vulnerable, but uh, you can only print so many cards. So, I'm just hoping they miss all the ones I don't want them to pick. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. So next on my list is Thalia's Lancer's Foils. This is another card that was uh, unfairly maligned early on that people are starting to come around to. Uh, It's now in 2,500 EDH decks and it's a potential four of in this new modern uh, Nykthos mono white brew that's been popping up. Um, This is the Eldritch Moon Rare. Foils are still available in the $250 to $3 range, and I think you'll probably get a chance to exit on these uh, north of 10 by the time everything is all said and done. This is, you know, very unlikely to make Tier 1 in Modern, but it's a cute little Tier 2.5, 3 deck um, that could top 8 here and there. And... um, you know, the fact that it's played as a four of there, you know, put, gives a little bit of momentum behind the EDH usage. Yeah, and it, it is surprising how much this is used in EDH, given that the the creature isn't really impressive at all. Like, you're essentially paying five mana for a tutor, it feels like, because, I mean, the, I don't really think of the card, as, the card as really being any good at all once it's in well, play in EDH, but... Well, I mean, the <laughs> thing is, it's a le- it gets legendary permanence, right? So that means right. it now gets Planeswalkers, so... I mean, yeah, yeah. That mean, I mean, means it probably makes the cut in a lot of um, not hyper competitive Atraxa builds. Atraxa still being one of the top commanders in EDH. Um, there's also like a common theme here, right? All three of our first picks are tutors. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is where I was going with this. Is like I look at Thalia's Lancers and think about how bad it is, but like essentially a five mana sorcery speed tutor for legendary permanence is still good enough to see a good amount of play in EDH. So people really love their tutors in that format, which is funny because tutors make that format way worse, but people are going to play them. So. Wow. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that it can go get a super busted land. It can go get a super busted planeswalker at an opportune time. It can go get a super busted whatever, because there's important. M- many of the most busted things you can do in EDH are, are legendary. <laughs> so whether yeah. you're getting a paradox engine or um, an Ugin or uh, a Gaia's Cradle, you're still doing nasty things for five mana. Yep, I was going to say it's, a, it's probably a Gaia's Cradle. <laughs> um, okay. My other card this week is uh, a little less immediate, but I think it's a it's a cool card with a pretty good ceiling. Um, looking at Splendid Reclamation from Eldritch Moon, this is a form on a sorcery that returns all of your lands from your graveyard to the battlefield. Uh, so Eldritch Moon came out a little while ago. I think it's about a year now, right? It was last winter, I believe. Uh, this no, is Splendid Reclamation. Uh, like a year, like two years from this winter. Okay, so it's like been a year and a half-ish so far. Okay, so it's it's in about 5,000 decks at this point, 5,000 EDH decks, which is pretty good. Um, but, you know, that's I would consider 5,000 EDH to be quite a bit in two years. That sort of is one tier underneath cards like Paradox Engine, which they reveal them in spoilers, and everyone's like, oh, okay, I have to put this in all of my decks. Um, I also think it's it's a pretty cool combo piece that we could see break into Modern or Legacy at some point, uh, Modern more so. Uh, you can definitely envision scenarios where you splendid reclamation people out with Valakit um, or other scenarios, um, you know, th- sort of like that. So it has possible, there's possible room for it in the format. I'm not promising you anything, mind you, just saying that the card could certainly make it there. Uh, so when you consider some pretty healthy EDH demand along with 
an outside shot at Modern and maybe some other places. Foils are $3 right now. And there's a good supply out there. There's like 50 vendors on TCG Player, uh, which is probably in the ballpark of like 100-ish copies. But, you know, for 3 bucks, I don't mind throwing them in your cart if you're already shopping type of thing and stashing them. Uh, because this could be a $10 foil in the span of about a year, maybe two years, uh, just from people slowly picking up copies for their own decks or they decide they want to... You know, Saffron Olive does a, a stream with it one day for and makes some weird tier three modern deck, and and suddenly everyone wants to go buy a, a foil playset because they're not that much, and uh, that could definitely drive the price up. So it's a, it's not quite as fast. It's it's not uh, not going to make you a ton of money next week, but I do like it as a longer term hold. I mean, it's good with Gitrock Monster. It's good with Omnath. It's good with any other commander that comes down the road that cares about lands entering play. Um, yeah, open ended stuff's where it's at. Yeah. All right, what do you want to finish us off the week with here? Finish uh, us off the week with? Finish off the week with. There we go. That's a sentence. <laughs> so here's a card that was languishing for a while when blue was not so good in modern. Um, but now, according to the Magic Online figures on Goldfish, um, Jeskai Control is in is like the third most played deck, and Cryptic Command is in uh, the top 15 cards in modern, and often as a three or a four of. So... The Magic Player Rewards version of Crypto Command Foils, um, this is the textless version, uh, sitting at $50 right now. You might be able to find them, find them in your local shop in the $40 to $50 range. I think this is a great card to be trading into, especially if you play a lot of modern and you want this card anyway. And it's the kind of thing you can have a really nice card in your deck, play it for a while, protect it well, and then potentially trade it out later when it's an $80 to $100 card. Um, they're not going to reprint this one, not like this. They just they printed this card in Magic. Uh, Modern Masters 2015, they just printed it in Iconic Masters. Um, and there's I don't really want to mess with the other foils because there's a lot of supply um, that has to get burnt through dis- despite how popular the card is. Um, and a lot of people will already have this card. But um, the people that really want to upgrade, um, they're running out of options because th- these are draining and they're draining across the globe. So um, I think this is a good place to stash a little cash, see some like modest appreciation over say six, 12, 18 months at the outside and the kind of thing you'll have no problem trading out at some point if you need to. <laughs> uh, so uh, I was kind of amused when I saw this just because I remember saying basically the same thing you did uh, probably like two or three years ago. Uh, <laughs> and cause I've got a stack of these, they were like, they were right around $50. Um, supply was really low. And I picked up like two playsets, maybe somewhere in that ballpark. And I was like, these are great. There's not that many foil copies. Even if it gets reprinted, this one's really unique. Uh, and, you know, I picked them up and then they like, they kind of sold out, but then didn't raise in price. And I was super annoyed because it seemed so good. But Cryptic Command had fallen out of the f- favor of the format at the time. Yeah. Uh, and now it's back in a big way. So I, I'm, I'm glad to see you've kind of come around to this on your own because it means I might finally get away with those copies that I bought forever ago. Yeah, I, I said top 15. Crypto Command is actually number eight. And it's the it's literally the only card in the top 25 in modern that costs four mana. Four, yeah. <laughs> so how, how powerful do you have to be to be a four mana card in, in modern right now? Uh, probably pretty I mean, like it's, the, it's, it's, it is just guy controls like payoff card. The only four casting cost card is thought nuts here. Can you guess what the only three casting cost card is? Um, I would say lingering souls, but I don't think that's really seen a lot of play right now. What, it, wait, what, what card did you give me? The, it's the only command. The, the only card in modern in the top 25 most played cards that is three casting cost. Popular Nothing. in Jund, Jund and uh, Abzan strategies. Maelstrom Falls? No, Liliana. Uh, Liliana. That's the one. And I mean, we've got Street Wraith, but obviously that gets cycled all the time. And we've got, yeah, Dis- zero. We've got <laughs> Dismember, but nobody ever pays full price on Dismember. Right. Yeah, Cryptic Command is usually those the card in those decks that is their windmill slam, essentially. Their I mean, if, you, if you're looking at the top 10, ignoring Cryptic... Almost everything else is a single casting cost card. So when you're evaluating your specs for modern, <laughs> start with casting cost as your your predominant uh, factor. I mean, Bolt, Serum Visions, Path to Exile, Thought Seize, Fatal Push, Inquisition, Relic of Progenitus, Noble Hierarch, Opt. Do you see a pattern, folks? Uh, this is this format is only getting faster and faster as time goes on, <laughs> or more efficient anyway. I think the takeaway is that uh, Wizards needs to stop printing so many good one mana spells. 
I still believe that you should just lop off five or 10 years of modern and reset everything. That would certainly make the format exciting again. People will be pissed off for three three to six months. Some people will quit, but the format will be reinvigorated. Tournaments will be interesting and there'll be a shit ton of new decks. Yeah, it would be pretty cool. Just say, okay, uh, we don't want to like completely... We don't want to build a new format, but we do want to do something kind of interesting. So we're we're getting rid of the first four years of modern, essentially. Get rid of like the ninth edition core set, which is weird, which get rid of the Tron lands, gets rid of Affinity. I guess the real problem is you get a bunch of people who are like, uh, I owned Affinity and Tron, and you just ate both of my decks. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You can always reprint decks. Like you can print decks back into the format through introducing the cards through the master sets. So you can pick and choose which stuff you want to keep. If you think something is like productive in the format, um, you might experiment with with cutting, cutting it off and then putting it back in later. Because you're essentially creating this giant size band list as an experiment. Many of those cards are part of a healthy format. So coming back into the center after some period of ex- experimentation gives you a lot of options. Now, a lot of people will think this is a stupid conversation because Modern's probably the, A, the healthiest format, B, healthier than it's ever been um, in terms of deck diversity. Um, and while we have, you know, many pros complaining that it's like hard to metagame because, you know, your your results at a tournament may have more to do with what you end up facing than, and, you know, your likely matchups than it does play skill per se, um, I still think everybody's, you know, probably happier with Modern than almost anything else but EDH. Yeah, yeah, but if, you know, even though it's very good now, it's you know, it is kind of stagnant. And they're gonna have to do something about it eventually, especially if they want to sell more cards ever or let local stores sell more cards. Yeah. Um, uh, although it, you of all people should be sensitive to the idea that uh, banning like banning Tron out by removing Ninth Edition and then putting it back in later just makes everyone feel terrible because it doesn't get rid of how bad you felt when they got rid of it in the first place and then it pisses off everyone after you bring it back again. <laughs> you sell off your like foil affinity stuff and then they, they bring it back a year later? Yeah, pretty much. That would No one That's would be ugly. happy about that. <laughs> That's ugly. It's ugly. They're, they're, it's a complex subject. Um, but I think that anybody who thinks that we're not going to have a new format in the next five years is deluding themselves. Like a big part of this game is keeping churn rates up on cards. You got to keep cards going in and out of stores so that they can get their margin and people have reasons to buy new products. And yeah, I mean, it, it, there's so many ways for them to advance sales patterns if they are willing to be more aggressive with format control. Yeah. I remember when Frontier was just kind of people were just starting to talk about it. And I was like, eh, I don't know if Magic is ready for a new format, but uh, I'm, I'm going to not say a convert, I guess, but I am much more amenable to the idea of it than I was before. And it's not because there's a problem with Modern. I just think it, it's in Wizards' best interest to start considering that. Well, and like two years later, Frontier is healthier than ever because it's got extra sets now, right? So um, whereas before it kind of looked like Jeskai Black Central. Um, and and like the old ramen up red versions without ramen up, um, that format's like very skill intensive um, because they have access to fetch lands, um, and, but not shocks, and all sorts of stuff <laughs> uh, can be done from the last five years worth of standard, and. You know, that format has not expanded at all. The same cities that were playing it up front are pretty much the ones that are still playing it. It's popular here in Toronto. It's popular in Japan. Um, There are some online leagues, and it's just kind of quietly going along doing its thing like Popper does. It hasn't been two years since people started talking about that format, has it? I think so. At least 18 months. Wasn't it only last year? Mm Mm-hmm. Because I've barely played this year uh, because we had Alara over a year ago. Hmm. And I, I was playing for the year prior. So, yeah, it's got to be two years. Wow. Jeez. Doesn't feel like it. Time flies, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, All right. So, moving, moving right along, we're going to uh, segue over to our metagame week in review. Uh, this week, we're looking at GP Oklahoma City, which was a 1,419-player modern event last weekend. Um, Healthy-looking top eight. Like we said, modern's in good spot. Why don't, you, why don't you break down the top eight decks for us? Yeah, so it looks like we saw two scape shifts, uh, a black green Tron, a, dre- a dredge, Jeskai breach, living end, and then two mono green Tron. So a good weekend for Tron for sure. Three in the top eight, but one and two taken by scape shift as well. Um, so, so certainly some formats that had 
at times recessed within the format came screaming back here uh, this weekend, especially the living end in the top eight. It was the, this was not the mono blue living end, though. This is the more standard one. Um, you know, the beast within demonic dread living end violent outburst type of thing. I did notice that Archfiend of Ifnir has made uh, has quickly made itself uh, a mainstay in dredge as with horror of the broken land. So they brought those back or those are. Those are in to stay. Uh, the Model Green Tron is kind of nifty. Um, the Scape Shift decks are standard. A lot of Summoners packs. Sweltering Suns has really made its way into the format too. Uh, not really a lot of financial movement for that card available, unfortunately. But um, no, it's only it's only a two of in that deck, and and tends to be mostly in that deck. Yeah, so. and it's an Amonkhet rare, right? So like, there's we're not. This is not going anywhere anytime soon, and it probably doesn't have the reach through other formats the way that like anger the gods does because exile yeah. clause is so important yeah i was gonna say anger the gods was about exile but also about uh higher edh use yeah i mean really i guess my takeaway is that this is a fairly different top eight than the past other top eights we've looked at just within the last two months so uh, you could modern is so cool you can show up with basically any deck in top eight if you're playing well and you get kind of lucky <laughs> Yeah, if you get good matchups and you know your deck really well, then sky's the limit. Yeah. I mean, what what was your takeaway from all this? Did you have any other thoughts? Uh, I thought it was interesting. Worm Coil Engine as like a three of instead of a one or a two of in all of the Tron decks. Um, so they, they seem to be wanting to make sure they can cast on six instead of seven. Um, I'm not sure how long that's been going on or how standard that's been, but it seemed to me like that was a little higher uh, on the numbers. I'm not sure that really means much because it's the only deck that wants the card and that's not really where I want to be. Would you agree, however, that the Tron lands are probably at the top of uh, the list for ban potential in Modern at this point? Yeah, I do. And they're not necessarily there in the sense that they create like busted game states. I mean, we're not talking about like uh, I have Ugin busted, right? They're not that they're not I they're not, they're not the same problem that I have Ugin was and they're not the same problem that eggs was but they're somewhere in between in the sense that they're very powerful and they're also not very fun so they don't make the game take forever but the game state is kind of crummy like okay all my opponent has to do is string three lands together and i'll probably lose if he gets those three exact lands uh and it's really hard to fight that in modern like you basically have to be playing land destruction but even that um might not be enough as Many players who play against Tron on Magic Online, watch their Twitters, they will tell you every time they double Fulminator Mage their Tron opponent and still lose because they just drew natural Tron. Uh, I don't know if if players seem very happy with it. Like It seems like the people playing Tron do it because they know it's silly and the people playing against Tron get very frustrated. So if Wizards wants to shake things up, that would be a good place to start, I guess. Um, simply because, I mean... You're talking about two soul rings and a Mishra's workshop as your mana base. Like, it's pretty busted. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody debates that the lands are too powerful in the format in combination with the easy uh, land tutor, artifact land tutors. Like, that's really the what's given us five different flavors of Tron, right? Is that you can ex- expedition map for the piece that you're missing um, or ancient stirrings for that piece. Or, you know, a, a few other lesser ways of, of getting to where you want to be. I think Chromatic Sphere shows up in those lists as well, right? Yeah. So, you know, Modern in, in a pretty good place, playing against Tron, still kind of shitty. Playing against Lantern Control, still not a good experience. <laughs> Terrible for coverage. Um, so, I mean, part of what may happen with the list in the next year isn't so much about balancing the format as it's going to be about manicuring coverage, would be my guess. Yeah, which seems fair, which seems very fair. Like, it's it, yeah, it's not about balancing the format. It's about making people sure people playing it are having fun and it doesn't look terrible. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to our topic of the week. we got a couple of good ones this week. First thing we're going to dip into is, did you hear about the unstable god boxes? No, I saw you write this down, and, and I wasn't sure what you were referring to. God box or god pack? God boxes. So apparently there are boxes of unstable out there. And we're going to set off a stampede here that have a foil full art land in every pack. And it's been established that if it whatever case it came out of, all of the boxes in the case are God boxes. 
Wow. So, so the problem there is if you're a store and you're cracking cases, you may as well open one box from each case first. Check it for God boxes. If you find one, dig into that case and see if you just want to pack and, and flip all of those foil lands. Um, and, you know, that may, it's not exactly pack searching per se, but it certainly gives the stores an incentive to be, to be a little bit more careful in what they're opening and in which order. Um, and kudos to whoever gets one of those. Cause these lands are going for like 50 to a hundred dollars each right now. So one in every pack and these are 36 pack boxes, right? Not 24s. Yeah. 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 So, so that's like an $1,800 box minimum. That is pretty ridiculous. <laughs> uh, damn. That is a pretty nice box to open. Puts those, uh, God packs from Theros to shame, huh? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, one of every god. Ooh. Um, these are these are a little more sexy because the thing is that I, I've heard that these are that each of these lands, the foil, full art, island, mountain, etc., um, are roughly equivalent to an invocation in terms of rarity. In terms of how, yeah, in terms of rarity. So they're not like one; they're one per case, but there's three in a case in this case. So you tend to see like one to one and a half per three boxes, um, which is sort of similar uh, to the ratios for uh, invocations within a, in the same order of magnitude. And as such, these, these foil full art islands, which not everybody likes, like the community seems fairly divided on this topic, um, not as much as they were on the Amonkhet invocations, um, but there is still some debate as to whether these are good. I, I think they're good as long as all of the lands on the table, on, at least on your side, are using the same border. So if you're playing all basics, I think this is actually a really good way of delineating lands from non-land cards for coverage purposes. And there's a reason that at the first tournament where they could, they handed these out to the top eight competitors and had them play with them because they wanted to see them on camera and see what the reaction was like. Twitter loved that. People were like, thought that was awesome. Well, I mean, this is what's missing in Magic. If you're not going to go the full distance and do what I've been saying for ages and basically create a digital tabletop that you can use for top eights that allows people to fully interact with what's happening, zoom in, scroll around, pause, rewind, and do all of that, um, which I don't expect them to do anytime this decade, uh, you know, at least um, start thinking about your game pieces in terms of their marketability via on-camera performance and consider, you know, potentially replacing all of the cards in top eight competitors decks at really big tournaments, like certainly maybe at the pro tour so that for visibility and identification purposes, um, and create some at the, at minimum, create some kind of like live stream that Corbin handles from the sidelines of the pro tour top eight that, that, you know, tells people what's on the table on both sides and lets them see the tabletop, um, you know, or at least get a list of the cards that are on the table so that, you know, as people are watching, they have a reference point that allows them to dig deeper and connect um, to the strategy and and the digital, the assets that are on display, right? Yeah, there are so many cool things that you could do with all of this. Uh, and it's a shame we haven't seen any of it. Uh, but yeah, I really like the way they look. They are very cool looking, um, you know, especially when you're just looking at pictures on on uh, Twitter. They look great. Seeing them alongside of a bunch of other lands, I feel like they're not quite as cool as I thought they were just because you, they kind of clash. I don't want to say clash, but you don't have that consistency with all of like your fast lands and your shock lands and your fetch lands, but they do look cool. They probably look at their best, like in draft format where you can just have all of those basics. Uh, then they look really cool. And it's a shame that they didn't, um, kind of think ahead and do the like expedition lands in this format. So then when these came out, now you could complete your series. So you could have oh. all expedition basics and non basics, which would have covered like, most lands, right? Like most competitive level lands would have been covered by that. That would have been really cool because then people would be like, oh, I got these awesome basics. Now I should go back and get the expedition lands, like the expedition fetches to match. In three to five years where they go back and do expeditions again, <clears throat> I hope that they listen to this and and take your message to heart because it, one of the reasons that the affinity masterpiece um cards have sold so well arc bound ravager mox opal etc 
um, is because that's one of the only modern decks where you could make a, a large portion of your deck masterpiece um, and have them all match. Um, so th- there's a tremendous amount to be said for the ability to move high value cards based on their aesthetic synergy with pre-existing options. Um, and if they keep that in mind as a long-term game plan, they could definitely help dealers move some product. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Like that consistency and that sort of like pushing players towards those types of things seems like it will definitely get them someplace. All right. So moving right along, uh, final topic of the week. Um, as if you've been listening to us for the last little while, you've, you've probably heard our, our adventures in crypto. Uh, we've been buying cryptocurrency for a little while now. Just a few weeks ago seems like a forever ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, I traded my black unlimited black lotus into some Bitcoin, um, which is now worth uh, almost eight and a half thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. It was like 0.43 for that lotus. Um, pretty astounding growth. Um, certainly feels like a good move. Um, so we've been looking at all sorts of other cryptocurrencies, trying to figure out what which of the like thousand plus lesser coins might be worth a look. Um, most of what I found is that they are a bunch of nonsense. Um, but one uh, stood out from the pack that was like suggested to me by Kelly, uh, one of the owners over at Kelly, Quiet Speculation, uh, told me to take a look at this game Nova Blitz that's already available for download on Steam um, and the associated Nova Coin, which is their plan to um, roll out the fully featured version of their platform. Um, so this is basically ex-employees from Wizards of the Coast with a bunch of other people, um, headed up by CEO Paul Barclay, who was previously a digital program manager uh, for Wizards of the Coast at various points. Let me see exactly what his LinkedIn says. He was a uh, new business producer from December 2004 to December 2005. Then he was the new product development manager from December 20, uh, 2005 to June 20, 2008, and then director of program management and program director from 2008 to 2013. So um, now he is the CEO of something called Dragon Foundry LLC, and they are trying to put out this game Nova Blitz, which is basically like elements of magic and hearthstone um, connected to a cryptocurrency. Um I understand you played this game this morning. Yeah, uh, I gave it a couple rounds just enough before I had to step out this afternoon. And I think I think you said you played a little bit, too. My takeaway was that just given the theming of this, um, there was like futuristic tech soldiers alongside like an angel and people on dragons. And I think there were some vampires or something, too. Uh felt very generic and uh yeah like just didn't really wasn't really that invested in trying to build an awesome world so i suspect that it basically only exists as a proof of concept for what they're really trying to sell which is this nova token um and you know their their end goal is to get that in get that adopted by larger uh studios um with much larger player bases uh and and the game is basically just there to to show what it could look like if people did that did you have the same thought well, I certainly share your thoughts about the world building, um, that it seemed very kind of rushed and unfocused and it, it, amateur. Um, it, it looks like a million different board games I've seen where they're just like, here's all the stuff people relate to. It's sci-fi, it's fantasy, it's everything all at once. Um, so there's just a little something for everybody. We're cast. It, it feels like there's a meeting and somebody's like, let's do this theme. And they're like, no, let's cast the widest possible demographic net. Yeah. And the problem with that is that, you know, if you think about the things that have really captured people's attention, they are original IP that was people heavily invested in upfront that um, was nurtured over time. So you think about what Blizzard has done with their brands, and they, they have really set the standard in digital for 20 odd years in terms of building and, um, you know, nurturing their their product lines. So, I mean, how excited were you when Diablo 3 came out? Uh, didn't you play a shit ton of that game? Well, yes. <laughs> did, did, do, <laughs> yes. And how many years was that after the first time you played a Diablo product? Uh, well, let's see. I think I played Diablo 2 for the first time when I was 15, maybe 16. Uh, no, I don't think I had a car, so I would have been 15. And I know that Diablo 3 came out when I was traveling for work, which couldn't have been more than five years ago. So I think there was probably a, close to a 15-year gap between when I started Diablo 2 and the first time I played Diablo 3. And, and if I if I mention 
the portals that open back the town? Can you see them in your mind's eye and can you hear the sound when they open? Uh, not only can I see that, I may or may not be able to see them on my computer screen right now. Like I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> I mean, right. for the longest, so, time, but, for the but, longest but, time, my text message sound was Deckard Kane. Yeah. So, I mean, my point being that Blizzard is are the masters of brand building in the digital space that they have understood um, the whole time how to give people something that they already knew they wanted in a mixture with things they didn't even know existed. Uh, if you look at something like Hearthstone, Hearthstone is a spinoff from World of Warcraft, although many people have probably forgotten that by now. Um, and, you know, they leveraged that community to spool up a whole new game that ate Magic Online's lunch and took over a massive chunk of, of the online uh, trading card segment. And the thing is that when I think about opportunities for cryptocurrency, where a coin makes sense, you have to have an application for the blockchain that leverages things like anonymity, security, um, proof, transaction proofing. Um, onboard contracts, all of these promises of crypto. And show me how your network, your coin, your token, your system, your process and methodology are going to address some real issue in, in the world that is a serious issue that's not being serviced properly by existing technology. And convince me of that. And now we have a discussion to be had about how much of your coin I should be buying. But one of the things I, that I think is problematic with NovaCoin is it, it does not actually look like they have any intent of building a broader gaming platform. Like that's not what I read in the white paper. Um, uh, and and to be to be fair, I've only spent like half an hour to forty five minutes with that, their documentation, um, so it's possible I'm missing something. But from what I saw, this is mostly about proof of stake, um, turning early investors and players into essentially online LGS owners or the equivalent of a bot owner on on Magic Online, where because you purchase coins up front, um, and right now their ICO is ongoing. It just started the other day, and every day from here till I think middle of January, you get less and less coins per dollar put in or whatever. And I think the minimum buy-in is like a thousand bucks or something. So this is a pretty standard ICO going on um, where the people that get in the earliest get the most most out of it. Um, and if the game looked great, then I'd, I I would be seriously considering putting some money into this just as like a high risk, you know, funsy, let's see what happens kind of thing. But the problem is the game doesn't look great. Um, so, I mean, one of the problems I saw was that uh, the game is very much like Hearthstone, but I'm sure you noticed that the all of the there's only a single turn, like everybody does everything kind of at once, although initiative shifts back and forth here and there. Um, yeah, it was like, t- instead of like my turn and your turn, it was like, we each take the same phase together. Like we each have a main phase and then we each have a combat phase and we kind of go back and forth on those and how much you do on your phase determines who gets to go first in the next phase. Yeah. And there wasn't, there is an interesting mechanic in the way that combat happens because you attack simultaneously where your move, you decide whether to attack or block the creatures on the other side. Um, and your decisions are all locked in before they are revealed. So I can say, oh, he's got a big guy. And if I don't block it, it's going to kill me. So I'm going to block it with this, but attack with these two. And I'm hoping that the first of my attackers is blocked by by one, this guy of his and that he puts the other guy on my second guy. Oh, no, he reversed the order. It didn't work out as I hoped. Um, the problem I saw was that the board got very cluttered. The timer is pretty quick on the action phase, on the attack phase. And so often when it was resolving, I couldn't even track like exactly what happened a lot of the time. And I guess that, that your instincts on that would get better as time went on. And you know, it might be a 16 year old that would laugh at us and say, well, duh, like I nailing this every time. But I think that it's hard to connect to the strategy if you can't parse the strategy and there's no easy way to rewind and see what happened. Yeah, I actually was thinking the same thing. You get through the first two tutorial missions and it's like, okay, it's actually a really fast game and you have to do all of your actions before this timer bar runs out. And uh, I'm not the tankiest play- magic player that's ever lived, but I am definitely probably on the longer turn side of things. So I saw that and I'm like, uh, so you want me to de- like parse out the correct ordering of attacks and blocks for four creatures on each side of the board and you're only giving me 12 seconds to do it? 
I'm like not a fan of this one. <laughs> well, I mean, it's they're you know they're borrowing that from Hearthstone, and I'm sure I I would be interested to see like a dedicated Hearthstone streamer like Kibler dive in on Nova Blitz and see what he thinks, because you know the Hearthstone players are certainly more used to um, the shorter timelines, but. They usually only have to, in Hearthstone, you really only have to think about what you're doing on your turn because most, unless they have a secret hidden on the other side of the board in Hearthstone, they can't really react to what you're doing most of the time. Um, whereas in this game, you're kind of playing simultaneously, so there's more to, more bits to track. Um, but I think overall, I just felt like the game was largely derivative, um, that the theming was, as we said, very underwhelming, and it just didn't look compelling enough to drive the use case. And the problem is that in the digital space, you're already handicapped if you're not one of the biggest production houses. So if you're not Activision Blizzard, automatically the chances of your game succeeding are way, 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 way less. You could have, There are a lot of really fantastic games published every year from independent publishers that deserve to be in the top 10, top 20 of the year that nobody ever plays or, or knows exists aside from like a tiny little niche market because they just don't have the marketing power behind them. And the thing about this if it's going to be cryptocurrency based is that the value of those tokens is very much going to be about how many people are playing this game. And yeah, given that I'm already not spending time playing Hearthstone, not spending time playing magic online, not spending time playing um, Gwent very often. I played it a little bit then kind of faded out, um, not playing eternal, the LSV driven project with Direwolf, um, all of which are very solid games. What are the odds that Nova Blitz is going to capture my attention? What What are the odds that Nova Blitz is going to capture the attention of the relatively narrow like online TCG market? And more to the point, um, what are the odds that the proof of stake um, features of holding the Nova coins are going to play out? So, I mean, to explain that a little further, the way proof of stake works is basically, let's say you buy a bunch of Nova coins right now during the initial coin offering, the ICO. Um the theory based on what I saw in the white paper is that when the game spools up, they're going to start issuing cards on some kind of a schedule monthly or weekly or whatever. And the people that have, when you, if you are holding more coin, you have proof of stake, meaning that you get coins based on your relative stake in the game versus other people. So if you put in 10,000, I put in a thousand, you're going to get more cards for free out of the system that basically are giving you like like vendor inventory. It's kind of like if Magic Online bot dealers got cards for free and got the, to sell them to people based on how much money they put into Magic Online up front. And so if the game was super popular, like if we were talking about Hearthstone and this is how Hearthstone worked, oh my God, that would have been an amazing ICO. Like if Activision was behind this project, I would have already put in 10,000. Like slam dunk, easy, all day, every day. Show me a major publishing house with a good game that decides to do, the, do an ICO, I'm all over it. But my concern here is that... <laughs> If I was going to pick anybody in the world to run the kind of like the the preeminent TCG slash crypto project, would you think about picking people that were X Magic Online? <laughs> Wouldn't pick those people to program my VCR. Exactly. I mean, Magic Online up until 2013 was still stuck in like gaming tech from 2003. So do you want the guy who left his job at Wizards um that is now CEO of this project in charge of the crypto revolution. Um, I'm not convinced. Yeah. And I, I guess when I think about it, I, I can see how they don't need the game to be a huge success to show it as a effective game. I don't, I look at that and I'm like, this guy uh, feasibly isn't dumb enough to think that the game he has built and the the art design tells me that he, they know this is not going to be a killer app. But they basically want to be able to say, well, here's a game and we can demonstrate what happens when you buy the Nova tokens and the process and that type of thing. And they're trying to hook other... Com they're, they're basically trying to sell them the product and this is just a demo. And I guess the idea is like they don't need Nova... Nova Blitz to be a success because if they get some like a company like um, Eternal, the, the card game Eternal to go, okay, we like the idea of this. We like the idea of having this currency backing our game. 
or a currency, they can then sell that to Eternal and again with an established player base and real designers and real art assets and people who are really interested in making the game. Uh, and I think that's what they're shooting for. And I do think it's going to be a company like Eternal. They're not going to shoot for Hearthstone or Magic Online because they're too big and they're making way too much money with their current models to like be interested in jumping ship for something that seems so crazy. But if they can catch some of these sort of mid-tier people like Gwent, like Eternal, um, hacks and those types of companies where there's an established player base, but not so big that they are completely unable to consider doing some wacky stuff. That's what I would imagine they're shooting for. I'm, I find the whole concept kind of interesting uh, because Hearthstone and magic do so well selling booster packs to players and probably these other companies too. So it's, I'm not exactly clear on what those companies are getting out of this. Uh, they're really going to have to sh- to prove that they can make a lot more money with a cryptocurrency model, um, which I don't... It, and it's kind of funky. So the idea here... Maybe you mentioned this. I, I don't know. I didn't, I don't, I didn't hear everything you said, but they said they will only print a certain number of copies of a card. So like they'll print a thousand or, you know, 10,000 of this card and then that's it, which has not been done at all in digital card games to this point. So it does sort of push the collectible aspect in a way that nobody else has so far. So, which, which is interesting, right? Because there's no other digital card game where you kind of have that limitation where there's only a set number of each card printed, but they've done that, uh, which is a cool space to be playing in, I suppose, and kind of drives that collectible market in a way that no other game has, right? Because there isn't a collectible market. So there's no collectible market in any game, right? Other than magic and even magic, it's not quite the same because they can re there's no reason to believe that they won't just create more digital copies of any card at any time, whenever they feel like, and we know they're moving away from that too with arena. So it does allow for a different model for a company that might want to try and pursue that as a way of driving their revenue. But I don't know. It's, it's an interesting concept, but I agree. Like the, the product itself doesn't, doesn't inspire confidence so far. I guess my, I guess I'm just not sure that they feel like they need to. And it, it looks like they know that it doesn't and they're okay with that. Well, I think you're giving them too much credit. As far as I can tell in the white paper, this is a closed loop platform. So there, there, there is nothing more to this than Nova Blitz. Like they, they can't loop in other games because that wrecks all the math around the release of the tokens. Um, in the same way that, that if Bitcoin wants to change its fundamental um, software, it has to fork. Um, and and NovaCoin, NovaCoin can't really fork and then sell, nor is there much impetus for anybody to jump on board because their techno- underlying technology um, could is largely modeled off pre-existing ICOs and could more probably more easily be recreated than it than uh, than licensed. So far as I can tell, this is all about a single game, Nova Blitz, which could get better over time in terms of its art direction and so forth. That's one of the easiest things to upgrade if you've got enough money flowing into the system um, and user experience, because I didn't think the, the, the GUI was very good either. Um, but basically, the way it works is we put the money in um, or later, like you don't have to be part of the ICO. Later, you can buy Nova Coins based on how much Nova Coin you own. You get free cards. You can then sell those cards to people for more than the value of the coins that you got. That's the assumption. Um, if the if the user base is growing, that's what should happen by the economics of it. Um, there, are, the coins are limited, but there are billions of them in in this ICO, way more than there is Bitcoin, um, which allows for tremendous amount of growth without potentially much uh, uh, capital appreciation in the value of the coins, unless the game is growing out of control. And so the more money you put into the system, the more free cards you get, the more money you're making off your stake. But if other people are accelerating, like committing more than you, they're going to get more out of it because it's based on the total amount of coins issued. So like when there, if it's just you and you own one coin, then you're getting all the cards. Um, if there's two coins, now we're splitting the cards. If, there, if you have two coins and I have one, I think you get two thirds. Uh, that seems to be the suggested math. And so as you spool that out, basically who this targets is the hyper... Um, uh, hyper uh, addicted segment of the market that tends to buy um, digital add-ons all the time. So a lot of the games that are freemium where most of us get to play for free and the addicts basically supplement that by paying for all the extras like digital clothing and whatever um, are the ones who are most likely to continuously reinvest more NovaCoin, sell things, get more NovaCoin, buy more NovaCoin, end up with tons and tons of NovaCoin and end up as the like LGS slash bot owners 
um, of this network. But as you said, if the game isn't super compelling, then we're probably, you know, this is probably more of a curiosity than anything else. And, you know, worth review by anybody who's planning to do the real deal uh, a little further down the road. Now, in the in the white paper, they list several other companies I've never heard of that looked like they were alternative cryptocurrency concepts for digital card games, but they didn't look like games. They looked like products that a game developer could build their system to accommodate for, which is why it was, I looked at it as them trying to sell the Nova token concept to other companies. Is that is that not what that section was trying to so to say? What page of the white paper was this? Oh, uh, I don't know. If you give me a second, I can pull it up. Yeah, go for it. Uh, all right. So if you're talking about page 11, where they listed Engine Coin, DMarket, and Wax, that was a comparison against other uh, other coins trying to do similar things. Yeah, that is what I was talking about. That is what I was talking about. But like to me, that says like, hey, you could you could have Eternal be based on any one of these other coins. This is why you should have Eternal based on Nova Token. No, 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 no. They they were just saying that like their coin is a total package. Like it's the platform and the game and the reward system and the integrated esports and the community friendly sale all in one. They're just basically trying th- th- that that page is essentially targeted at us to try to convince us to buy their coin and not somebody else's. But it's not an uh, a uh, an pro offer that they are an open-ended gaming platform that other people could build on top of. There are some coins that are trying to be the, the gaming transactions platform. Um, and I was looking, uh, looking at another one uh, last week that that's out of Eastern Europe um, that wants to basically be the future of esports coin um, where the um, management of teams and leagues and distribution of profit was all handled through the blockchain that seemed compelling because fraud and um, uh, embezzlement has been a major issue with esports teams. And there's been a lot of concern, you know, in everything from magic to, you know, name an esport that the team owners tend to, and the sponsors tend to make more money than the players. Um, So, you know, the, you can convince me that there is a, an application as a broad platform where it doesn't matter what game succeeds so long as the plat- underlying platform is being used by many prominent games. That's not what Nova Token is offering. They're, they are essentially offering a closed system where the coin is the game, and if you believe in the game, then you should buy the coin. And I think so far what I've heard is that neither of us really believes in this game. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I can't. I don't see how anyone could take this game seriously. It just looks like it does not look like a game that pe- you would expect people to be really excited to play. Now, now, the funny thing is we, that we didn't it's mention so, so far generic. is that in their advisor list on page 17 of the white paper, Richard Garfield, creator of Magic, is listed as an advisor. So is Scaff Elias, who was one of the original uh, Magic uh, creators, uh, or sorry, the creator of the Magic Gathering Pro Tour, sorry, um, and some guy from PwC, <laughs> who's a consultant from PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, so... You and I were discussing this the other day, like to how much money did they pay Garfield to put his name on that list and to what extent is he involved? Because it didn't didn't feel to me like the kind of polished game that Garfield is known for being involved with. No, when you said when you initially tweeted something about Garfield, I was like, oh, he's a smart guy. And then it's like, oh, he's an advisor. Like, uh, okay. I know some people that are technically in advisory positions and they do one hour of work every literally once a year. Uh, And it's not like they make a tremendous amount of money, but the point is you could list that person as an advisor and they definitely do not have a real bearing on the outcome of the product. So yeah, I would say seeing Garfield's name on this does not mean a lot to me. Yeah. And unless I see like he's there just so that we will notice that he's there. Yeah, and whether or not he was consulting on game mechanics, I have no idea. But the the bottom line is that uh, the the Richard Garfield magic is not evident in the in the current product. Um, and the nice thing about digital card games is you can change you can change everything. Like they can build a whole new game on this platform. But given that the ICO is already ongoing, um, you know, are are they even going to hit their target? Because the way that ICOs work is you have you set a stage. You say we're going to sell twenty million in coin between now and thirty days from now. And if we hit it, 
everything's a go. If we don't, it's kind of like a Kickstarter. The whole thing collapses and everybody gets their money back is my understanding. Um, one of the other things I just noticed is we've been referring to it as NovaCoin. It's not NovaCoin. It's Nova Token. But the reason we're yeah. saying that is because they haven't even done their due diligence. There is, in fact, a cryptocurrency called NovaCoin. And I have to imagine that they're going to have massive brand confusion with them in trying to put out something called Nova Token. Nova is such a generic sci-fi like label. I don't even know why you would bend over backwards to grasp on to the Nova part of it and conflict with NovaCoin. Like it's just silly. Yeah, I mean there are like a zillion Bitcoin spin-offs, right? There's like Potcoin and Dogecoin and all sorts of stupid shit. So, like I don't necessarily see sharing a name with another cryptocurrency as a deal breaker, but if it's actually one that has any sort of semblance of people buying into it, that's a whole other story, right? Like, yeah, there could be a Travis coin. It, it doesn't mean that uh, people are going to get confused with it. If I make a Travis coin, but you'd have to be an idiot to try and make something called Bitcoin or, you know, bitter coin and think that it's not going to be a problem. Yeah. All right. So that, that's our two cents on Nova Blitz. It's free for play on Steam. I would encourage listeners to check it out and let us know what you think in uh, response to the show notes this week. And uh, I can't say I recommend getting in on that ICO, but if you feel like throwing some money in, in the pot and setting yourself up as a bot owner in potentially a very lonely ecosystem, go for it. You can find out how much uh, Richard Garfield actually has to do with it. That, let that be your driving decision. Yeah, fair. All right, James, where can our loyal listeners find you? As usual, you guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mdgprice.com. We got all caught up on previous show notes this week, so episodes 94 through 97 should already be up there for you, and we'll have 98 up before the end of the weekend. Oh, all right, awesome. A lot of resources people can go back and check out. Uh, uh, my name is Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. You can find my articles on uh, MTG Price every Monday for the Watchtower, give you an idea of cards to keep your eye on uh, out on the horizon. I also do the webcast, Cartel Aristocrats, on break over the winter. And uh, if you like playing Magic, check out Land. Find Magic in your area. Also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MDG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right, James, I had a lot of fun this afternoon. Always fun to talk to you about all this stuff. And uh, we almost made it through the episode without mentioning Bitcoin. So haha. <laughs> you people had to hear us talk about it again I'll, I'll see you next week james thanks travis we'll see you guys next week on another episode of mdg fast finance mm-hmm.